0: Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 16. My name is DK, and you're here for courageous conversations with bold humans. In this episode, I get to spend time with two lovely humans who go by the names of Natasha Zimmerman and Ben Preston. Natasha is the creative force behind Unshatter and is doing a PhD in organizational psychology, specifically in the area of belonging. And Ben Preston is an independent creative consultant, project director, at Motif, just done some amazing work in the community housing spaces. In this conversation, you get a year talking about connection, culture, community housing, regenerative practices and design, warm data, and that belonging comes up a lot. Big thanks to Jono Tucker over at Empire Films for recording the video version, which you're listening to the audio version of. So thank you, Jono. And also David Hamilton at Flashdog Studios for hosting us as well. Enjoy. Did you want to ask me a question? I
1: did want to ask you a question. So it's, it's really about the podcast and the space in general. And that is... What's been a standout podcast experience for you so far? Because yeah. I'm a little bit competitive, so you know, okay. I want Whoa. this to be the best podcast ever. Fair, I like it, I admire it. Love
0: that straightaway question. It's really yeah. hard for me to choose because everybody's so different, right? So asking like, Who's Obviously. your favorite child if you yeah. had kids? <laughs> they all have a favorite
1: child. That they don't tell
0: you. Yeah, I know, I'm my favorite for my kids. So you
1: can answer diplomatically, it's, it's all right. So, one of my
0: favorite ones from a perspective of what I was trying to achieve with this. Which is different than other things, yeah. is you mentioned Haratina's um, yeah. signature on mm-hmm. the table. And Haratina was paired with Gareth Parry from PWC. Mm-hmm. And they are two madly curious mm. people. So I literally had nothing to do because as soon as we stepped out, uh, Haratina started telling a story about the 3D printed bracelets she had, oh. which was 3D printed from the plans, the topography of. Mars from recollection, huh. um, oh. and the moon, so they they bumped all it over them, and yeah, go. and she was taking them off, so we were all like, "That," was like, "That's pretty rough. So I suppose it was my favorite one because I didn't have to do much.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> just listen to a cool and conversation, like, uh,
0: and then they were like just bouncing off each other. So that's what I like. The idea yeah. of all this is obviously courageous conversations yeah, with yeah. bold humans, yeah. bold being people who are doing cool shit, yep. uh, and courageous in terms of let's ask them interesting questions of each other and, and see where that leads. So there we go. Is that answer your question?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And then after
0: a couple of hours, this will be my favorite one.
1: Obviously. Yeah, just (laughs) give it a few
2: hours, but, you know. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Uh, Exciting, (laughs) interesting.
3: Well, it's, yeah, awesome to be sitting around a table with you two. I'm I'm stoked and intrigued. Great. uh, Yeah, I hadn't actually heard of Unchatter before TK introduced us. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just your energy on the emails, first of all the like brief exchange was just like yeah two thumbs up this is gonna be fun and then whenever i had a look on the website and did a little bit just had a look at your linkedin profile just some of the stuff oh, you yeah, did just yeah super, i'm like fascinated by the fascinated mm-hmm. by your fascination with connection
2: mm-hmm. and yeah. creating
3: spaces around that
2: mm-hmm. um, and
3: you seem to be bringing in a really um and i'm intrigued to hear more about this and kind of how you got to this point you seem to be bringing in a really evidence-based lens mm-hmm. to it yeah. which is something i haven't seen before like yeah. i've been around spaces where people have been doing people have been fascinated by connection and the role of connection and conversation and exchange and interaction in everything from health to just general community well-being psychological health emotional health spiritual development blah blah but not with that kind of Mm. approach to like oh no there's actually a link here that we can tie to evidence Mm -hmm. and to health outcomes so i'm really curious to hear more about that
1: yeah cool there's I'd love to tell the tell yeah. the story. And um, before I dive into that, I will first say you mentioned about the, you know, the energy and email. Yeah. And I was thinking about the two of you and just, you know, I don't know much about you either. So I'm, mm. I'm really intrigued by, by your story as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, thinking about a commonality that the two of you have, it's also really cool presence and email. Um, mm. I still remember when I I hadn't even met DK yet actually. Um, So this is going all the way back to the beginning of our mm -hmm. our friendship. And uh, at the end of his email, he put deep waist bows. I was like, that's so cool. And I think I wrote back with, you know, something about a curtsy or something. So, yeah. So, and likewise, like, yeah, (laughs) I think when you, when you find someone where you've, you know, you can kind of sense there's that, Mm. you know, that zest for life and, um, you know, that kind of energy, it's, it's amazing. So I noticed that about yours as well. So Mm. anyway, um, so Unchatter, I, um, I guess I'll tell a bit of the, the personal story of how it started and then weave in where the evidence base comes from as well. And yeah, we can we can riff off of it from mm-hmm. there. So um, Unchatter technically started with a dinner party that I threw when I had first moved to New Zealand. So I um, am obviously from America, as you can tell from mm. the accent, and I used to be a, a big uh, celebrator of Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I would have all my friends over, we'd have a big Friendsgiving party, and I wanted to do the same thing when I moved to New Zealand. So I had about 20 people over, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. And so I banned small talk. Um, So there were a few questions that were off limits, like, um, where are you from? Um, What do you do? How are you? You know, the common things that we all hear all the time.
3: Did you define small talk? Was there like a definition that was agreed for what small talk is? Yeah,
1: so outside of banning those questions, it was a bit of an honor code, but yeah. I, mm-hmm. I asked people to kind of use their intuition. You know, you have that sense, right? When you're when you're sort of sitting up here in the safety zone versus oh, when you're yeah. you're opening up and you're sharing more of yourself. Mm-hmm. So I you know, I rely on humans to to gauge when they're oh. in that space or not. Yeah, they're pretty reliable like that. Yeah, I agree. So um, so we had this dinner party where there was no small talk. I had a few deep questions laid out. I had done some exercises. Like, I'm a, I'm a chronic planner and very much a nerd. So this was like probably the nerdiest party ever, like rules and the whole <laughs> nine yards. Um, but it was such an incredible evening and i just remember like at one point walking through my little house and there were people in like every corner like in the bathroom there were like six people on my bathroom floor like in a little (laughs) circle engaged in conversation and it just it was so magical so Mm. i got a lot of encouragement to try taking it to the public and so i did and that was back in february of 2019 Mm. and here we are a couple years later so um
0: how would you describe uh, it now
1: Yeah. Ooh, good question. Um, I guess when people ask what I do or what my work is about, I always say that I am creating space for a deep conversation and meaningful connection. Um, that's the, that's the really brief elevator pitch. Mm. And, as you picked up on, I think what is really important to me is to certainly bring the intuitive human side of it, but mm-hmm. also um, the research side. So I'm also getting my Ph.D. I mm-hmm. will finish this year. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and my thesis is centered on looking at connection and belonging in mm-hmm. workplace mm-hmm. Um, settings. So that's that very much mm-hmm. informs a lot of the exercises that we do. And I just think to bring that sort of... Um, academic lens to it, along with the intuitive, like, Hey, I know it feels good as a human being Mm -hmm. and bring those two together. It appeals to people from, um, a pretty broad spectrum, which is what I'm, what I'm really after. The more people who are meaningfully connecting, the better in my book.
3: Totally, And it kind of helps remove it from, I feel like often with topics like connection or a whole range of other things that we kind of intuitively experience as positive or something that we might want to lean into. Mm. They're often treated as these like weird esoteric things because there's not an evidence base for it and people often don't pursue the evidence base um to kind of back it up when so often and you know some of the more recent discoveries of neuroscience and different uh physiological emerging physiological understandings of how we work are starting to really demonstrate why it is that it feels good in that way Mm. in a way that actually just takes it out of the realm of, oh, that's just like a mystical thing that doesn't but yeah, and into something that actually is practical and research-based yes. and tangible and people can get behind and we can integrate with workplace practices and, yeah, yeah so that's Yeah, I,
1: I wholeheartedly agree and I, I sometimes find myself a little bit conflicted because on the one hand, I think it's amazing that science is starting to figure out these things that we've known intuitively for mm. millennia, really. And now we're like, but there's research. And so now we can actually practice it. And so there's part of me that's like, well, but if we kind of knew it in here, Mm. did we, you know, did we really need a bunch of of you know scientists mm. to tell us that yeah. yeah this is this is a good thing mm. but as a researcher obviously like I I love mm. you know having the proof for things so mm. I can see both sides of it but yeah. yeah I sometimes wonder like where that that mushy middle is between science and intuition
2: yeah
3: yeah, yeah, yeah I hear that that kind of speaks really clearly in many ways to the feels like there's a lot of crossover and I didn't realize that you're thesis and research was predominantly in workplace kind of belonging and connection. Um, and it, there's, there is a lot of crossover in our work, which I find really interesting. So a lot of my, um, I did a podcast the other day with a community called Aqualab, and it's this kind of global community of people involved in the water sector, um, mostly water utilities, but consultants, engineers, yeah. um, who are all trying to understand How they need to act and respond differently in light of just the multitude of changes taking place both Mm -hmm. in the workplace, environments, ecosystems, our relationship to them, etc. And one of the things that we talked about that was on regenerative design, which is kind of part of my background. And it's really about how do we um, it's about us entering into relationship with the environments and communities we inhabit as Mm. evolving living systems things that change through time and core to the way that living any living system works is exchange it's interaction it's connection and it's that it feels really that feels very uh, resonant to me Mm -hmm. with what you do is you're kind of facilitating this higher fidelity exchange between people Mm. that just allows for more information to come into this as a technology like as a system to understand more of our environment and then Mm. respond to it in more appropriate ways.
1: Yeah oh I love the description higher fidelity connection that's yeah Yeah. that's brilliant. So tell me a little bit more like from a Mm. kind of a personal standpoint how did you arrive where you are now what's been your journey into regenerative Mm. design and everything that is is filling your world now?
3: Good question. Um, Belonging like it it really Mm. comes down to community and belonging. So I, this is a Northern Irish accent, which you may not have picked up because it's not that common an accent, but grew up just outside Belfast and uh, grew up in, it's a little town called Bangor, super cool place. It's like a little coastal village uh, town used to be like where a lot of people from Belfast would go for their sort of summer, summer holidays. Um, Cool little spot, but also had its challenges in terms of post the troubles in Northern Ireland finished when I was like eight years old, peace agreement was signed. So there was certain sort of frictions and tensions that you just grew up with in the Mm. community there and and certain challenges that were were visible but they weren't necessarily visible to me until I actually left and I went to Scotland for university, went to Edinburgh and experienced what it was like to be somewhere that kind of hadn't really been impacted to the degree that the place I grew up had by colonialism and war. Mm. So that gave me a really clear experience of what of the difference between a place that is experienced and has a really deep sense of just connection and well-being, and actually uh, grounding in its culture. So, like I studied in Edinburgh, and one of the things you're walking down the Royal Mile, like you know you're in Scotland, like mm. you just can't be anywhere else. It's a dude in a kilt with bagpipes, and it's just like the castle miles. on the hill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's like there's people of just cultures across the world there. It's such an international city, but you know you're in Scotland mm. all the time. Um, And Northern Ireland didn't quite have that. There was always this confused thing about, are we Irish? Are we British? Are we, there's this constant tension where you Mm -hmm. never, I never felt quite settled in any one identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, that was a big part of, of where, I guess, connection kind of came into it. I went back to Northern Ireland and actually have a, uh, my immediately older sister, Sarah, has um, quite severe disabilities and she was, she was born and kind of doctors put a bit of a glass ceiling on her Mm -hmm. development. And we were told that she was, she wasn't ever going to develop past a certain point. Mm -hmm. And mum in particular, but both my parents kind of raised us as a family in a way that they, they didn't structure the family's life around Sarah um, and her current capabilities. They kind of did what they wanted to do and what we were going to do as a family anyway, and gave Sarah the opportunity to respond to that. Mm -hmm. And as a result, she just like smashed through glass ceiling Mm -hmm. after glass ceiling and developed and grew into a very special, quite amazing human today. Um, Definitely one of my greatest teachers. Mm -hmm. And that was all because she was afforded the opportunity to kind of engage in the world in ways that other children with disabilities often don't Mm -hmm. have the chance to. So again, with her, I witnessed the way that this opportunity for connection and exchange with her environment allowed her to grow and evolve in ways that people couldn't predict, mm-hmm. the Western medical system couldn't predict. Um, and so I studied, studied engineering, I got into that, and it was like very, it was a very Western kind of Newtonian physics, thermodynamics, very mechanical view of the world. Mm-hmm. Practiced in that, that that space for a while and then specialized in sustainable design, which you know fundamentally is about how do we live in a sustainable way, how do we design things that enable sustainability. But living in a changing world, sustainability as a state requires constant change. It requires that we're changing always in response to our environment. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: To do that, we need to be noticing our environment. We need to be in relationship to it. We need to be receiving information from it, noticing the cues that tell us how it's changing so that we know how to adapt ourselves in response to it. Mm -hmm. So I started getting into that. And then, yeah, specialized in regenerative design specifically, which really is about kind of how do we increase the fidelity? Mm
2: -hmm. You know,
3: if you've got like a normal engineering team, the way they interact with say a building or a community that they're designing for that they have access to like 1% of the information that's available about that environment Mm -hmm. because of the tools they use to collaborate contracts, they use even their bodies, Mm -hmm. the ways they're aware or not. You mentioned before about sometimes you can tell in a conversation when it's kind of up here. Mm -hmm. And if you're up here, you're missing the intelligence of all the rest of this. Mm -hmm. Um, so regenerative design, in large part of the way, I kind of feel about it is it's about increasing the fidelity of information exchange with mm-hmm. the environment. Because the more we can encourage teams or help people to take in information about how an environment's changing, the better design decisions we can make about how to respond in a, in a way that can lead to sustainability. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of that was that was my journey, yeah. I guess.
0: How would you describe what you do now? Because you've got two titles. I when do, I got yeah. There, but I was like, okay, what are you? Yeah,
3: yeah, me? yeah. That's such a good question.
0: I feel like this is differs. probably one of the questions you banned at your little thing.
2: <laughs> probably, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. This is this is a different. It is, is I mean, that question? And I wanted in a to see stripe, this maturate,
0: the story maturate. Yeah. what is, what are you at this point? Because you're not done. No. But what would you Hope say? Not. Where you're at? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: I there's like two there's two things that come to mind yeah. generally. So there's like housing. I do a lot of work in the housing space at the minute, mm-hmm. and kind of community. Uh, community development and supporting the emergence of more collective, more resilient, more appropriate community and housing solutions. Um, And then there's kind of regenerative design in more of a sort of one-on-one or group space. So I do, it's kind of those two things. The regenerative design stuff is about working with people and teams Mm. to increase their ability to interpret and understand their environment in all of its nuance and all of its kind of complexity um, so that they can design more effectively for it. Of it's one aspect and then the other thing is the housing specific, which is sometimes a bit more technical and functional, Okay, you know, a bit more kind of looking at research into what's not working structurally in the housing mm. sector and so those are kind of the two main things I guess I do, but oh I don't. Know, it's such a hard thing to summarize. I'm like, yeah, yeah. why would you summarize? But you did, Tash. I'm super curious Oh, gosh. to see someone else squirm for a moment. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's it's kind of um, the statement I said earlier about creating space for deep conversation and meaningful connection. Um, and I do that by putting a lot of thought and intentionality into designing experiences. And I loved what you said in a couple different ways about noticing and having this awareness. And I, this this will sound a little bit um, esoteric, maybe, but I've been thinking a lot lately about the meaning of life, and as one does, as one does. But really, I. I've been trying to distill, like, what is it? I mean, it's this age-old question of humanity that all of us wrestle with, right? What does it mean to live a good life? And what are the elements that I would consider my, you know, my foundation or building blocks for it? And one of the things that I kept coming back to was this this sort of theme around paying attention and noticing. And I think it shows up in a lot of different ways, like, you know, appreciating beauty and really finding gratitude in small joys. And, you know, even being being out for a walk or out for a drive and just seeing all these, you know, like little micro interactions that maybe you wouldn't notice otherwise and really um, finding joy in that. And um, there's a, a really neat excerpt from a Mary Oliver poem, which maybe, maybe you both know. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I heard the gasp. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and fun. she said, uh, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And she, a lot of her poetry as mm. a fan, um, if you are, talks about this idea of noticing and paying attention. And, and I suppose it's, it's maybe it's high-fidelity mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, and so, oh, yeah, I just, cool. I love that it shows up for you too. Like, I feel totally. like noticing and awareness yeah. is such a big part of, of connection and just, yeah. I guess, the work I do and the way I mm-hmm. want to show up in the world. Yeah. And, yeah, it is for mm. you, even though we're in seemingly very different sectors, mm. it, to me, seems like a real common thread.
3: Totally. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, it's interesting, David White has... Poet. Now it's my
1: turn to guess.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I suspect it's Mary Oliver David White. They yes. kind of go like Hand in Glove. Yeah. But he talks about the conversation yeah. in a way that's like a lot of his poetry refers to the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the way I receive that is this kind of conversational exchange with life. Mm-hmm. So as we're walking through, we're constantly in conversation with the world around us yeah. in subtle ways and nonverbal ways. And there's mm-hmm. always just that exchange taking place and we can notice it or not. Yeah. But it's it's kind of happening. And there's one of his one of his poems, there's a line about easing into the conversation. Mm. And that it's, really speaks to that that's so much of what this is about is just easing into it and allowing yeah. it. And, yeah. um,
0: well, The big yeah. thread we all have is about intentionally doing that, though. Mm. So intentionally creating spaces yeah. for those conversations mm-hmm. or other things to happen, right? We're yeah. all quite intentional in that, whether it be through regenerative consulting, Yeah. you know, and uh, creating just layering probably new ideas into conversations and yeah, yeah. expectations and all mm-hmm. that stuff. and then specifically what you do with Unchatter yeah. um, and hopefully what I do with some of my things mm-hmm. as well, creating aspects and being intentional from a design perspective, I mean. Yeah. Not just yeah. like we're gonna throw people to them, we intend them to talk.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's
0: actually, a, it's a bit of design mm-hmm. and finesse, right? Yeah, all. yeah and just I learned that years ago when I went to an event in uh, Montana called Hatch, big shout out to the Hatch crew. Because it was the first ever event where they purposefully built in what they used to call white space. The idea that Uh. get out of the way, so curate the audience to the perspective of you have amazing people at this experience. Because it was only like 100, 120 people Mm. up in Montana Hills for four days. So already it has a a certain um, flavor to it that's very different to a conference that you're going to for one day. But then they built in a lot of space in the agenda mm. to just allow and trust that people will add value to each other in conversation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you get out of the way when you curate, uh, yeah. but you, you yeah. catalyze, you kind of ignite some yeah. conversation with experience and shared experiences yeah, yeah. and people on stages or music or whatever, but be very intentional then to create lots of different types of spaces. So they had the ca- classic campfire f- campfire stuff. little mm. campfires. Mm. Or grab a rod, go and, go and do some fishing, even if you don't know how to, use no. yeah. a rod. Yes, someone will show you. No, it's right? like, yeah. The point is you're, you're doing something side by side or with someone yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. And that intentionality of leading people to collaborate through yeah. something else creates other things. as we I out. love that. And I stole that, like a bloody artist. Yeah. Like Picasso yeah. says, yeah. steal like an artist. I'm like, I'm taking that. Yeah. And everything, every other event, I've definitely ported That's that awesome. into. It's like, yeah. how much space can I create to trust yeah. people?
3: Mm. trust so that's mm-hmm. the word that was literally coming up for me is right. trust okay. yeah. but it feels to me like so much of like what you were talking about the intention behind the design that enables that mm. so many of the tools and things that we use as standard that you know, if you're not being really conscious and intentional about how you're designing it, you just lift the off-the-shelf thing and what was done last yeah. time mm-hmm. or, or the off-the-shelf project management tool or the off-the-shelf research yep. approach or whatever it happens to be.
0: Just replicate. Yeah. They're
3: not designed for that. They don't mm-hmm. deliver those outcomes. And um, there is something about, I mean, one, I guess, it really excites me that there's people like you doing that because the more that that happens, the more experience and the more sort of, tools and reference points people have for design that does create that kind of connection by by design. But on the trust piece, it, it, it requires letting go. It requires yeah. not trying to control and just trusting that the people in the space have the tools that they need to have the experience that they're supposed to have. Sure. We don't need to define the experience that they're gonna have, mm. and then feel anxious about our need to control that. It just, the people challenge, sense that. The
0: though, with that, yeah. That I have yeah. is twofold. One, letting go mm. because I'm very precious. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh <my laughs> we all are. I think we all have, to yeah. some
0: degree, emotionally invested, whatever mm. time invested. We're a little bit precious, yeah. however I do it. But the second one is the measurement or the impact. Like we, mm. so I got so many anecdotal mm-hmm. um, stories around something like TEDx Wellington, which mm. I used to run. Right, so many examples of people came and did that. Mm-hmm. Now they're doing this. Blah, blah. However academically, yeah. qualitatively, mm. I don't know if you would stand up anyway. Mm. You know, and that's the challenge that you have when you I suppose resolve yourself to the idea you gotta let it go mm. and let it find its own path out there yeah. into the world.
3: There's a thing there's a thing called warm data that I'm gonna warm send data. you away after. Yeah. Okay. So there's this researcher called Nora Bateson who is now the I think she founded it the Bateson, International Bateson Institute, which is based on her dad's work, Gregory Bateson, who was a researcher, polymath, came up with a lot of things. She developed this concept of warm data. And the best way I feel like I can describe it is that the difference between warm data and cold data, like if I encounter a river and I measure the velocity of the water, the volume of water, the quantity of certain forms of bacteria or microorganisms of certain fish, that's cold data. So that's all taken out mm-hmm. of the context of the river. It's, so you can look at that data point, but it's okay, not within yeah. the field of relationships gotcha. that it exists. Warm data would be getting in the river <laughs> and feeling the experience of being in the river gotcha. and being in relationship to the river through time. So it's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. something that you can necessarily quantify, but it's still it's still very real information mm. it's high mm-hmm. fidelity information mm-hmm. we just can't necessarily simplify it to a single data point point. Sure. and i don't know what our, i'm just i don't know what her view on that is but it's just an interesting question i love the idea of
0: warm data yeah yeah. yeah yeah likewise
2: yeah
3: it's super interesting we've been some friends and i have been studying yeah. with her for a little while and Cause, yeah
0: cuz that's what i've lacked over the years is the the academic rigor of looking at what I've done and presenting to some kind of report, so people give me more money to do it, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you know—demonstrate impact, right, and yeah. all that. And and I do it very different ways. I get jo- lovely John to create videos from it and stuff like that, mm-hmm. because I feel that that's probably more warm, because mm. uh, it's more mm. human. I humanize the experience as much yeah, as possible. Yeah. But other people need, need need it in different forms. So I get—I'm interested in how you deal with that from totally. a PhD perspective, mm-hmm. then, because yeah. I suppose there's some academic expectation
1: to, mm. to Yeah. To yeah.
3: Habits. Like you've got such a firm footing in mm. both of those worlds. Mm. It like-
1: yeah, it's a it's a fun place to be. And I, I find a lot of joy, I think, in walking that that tightrope. Mm. But as like you were talking about before with, you know, needing to have data and how does the the world of academia look at it, I do think there's a bit of a, a softening in the approach to to data as the you know the whole warm data yeah. phenomenon would suggest. Yeah. like um, like when you think about belonging and connection, for example, I think, you know, a few decades ago, nobody would have even thought, oh, that's that's a concept that we can wrap some literature around and there's a way that we can actually study it. Yeah. Like even within the world of psychology, I think, you know, qualitative studies have been sort of, you know, poo-pooed for, you know, for a long time. It's really only in, I think, more recent years that people have started to say like, no, actually there are legitimate ways that you can design a study and still, you know, find some some meaningful threads that help us, you know, attach a you know, a theory or something concrete to these really nebulous Mm -hmm. concepts. Um, And I think what, where I find a lot of joy in that space is it's still a very human process. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we think about research, it's, you know, somebody in a tweed jacket, you know, behind a big desk and yeah, yeah. Yeah, and
3: and, (laughs) and just like very sterile.
1: Exactly. And sometimes research does look like that. But, you know, my research has been having conversations with people. I mean, you know, Rigorous, like consistent, you know, um, scripted conversations to a degree, but there's yeah. so much that you can uncover by having a long-form yeah. conversation with a human being and following that conversation, just like we're doing here. Like this, this yeah. isn't a whole lot different than yeah. you know what I might have done in some of my PhD interviews. Like you know, huh. there's certain data points that I'm I'm looking for and avenues mm. that I want to go down, but it's also just you know it's following that path. And then once mm. you get enough of that data collected you can you know, kind of pull back and say, oh, mm. this thing came up. You know, it's almost like if you were to put it all up on the wall and then you could see little you know, like pinholes of light where there's these, these common threads, threads coming through. Well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm. And that's, it's such a cool process, I think, to take really complex ideas and complex human beings yeah. and complex ideas and somehow to distill mm. them into something that actually has yeah. meaning and that we can, we can use in a practical way.
0: I'm interested. What's the outcome that you expect from your PhD? What is the, not conclusion, but mm. what are you stretching to discover through it?
1: Yeah, so it's it's sort of a, um, I guess it's a model, if you will, with belonging at the centre. So mm. um, I'm first essentially looking at what is the definition of belonging in the context of the workplace. Mm. So there's a whole um, theory of belongingness, um, which I think when I first read that, I was like, really, there's like a theory of belonging. <laughs> um, but it's it's really interesting, actually. The, um, the psychologists who came up with it um, have, I mean, it, it was in 1995, I think, when this theory first came out. So there's been lots of follow-up research mm. um, along with it. And they've put some really good structure around what this need to belong actually mm. means and and looks like but it's been studied more in like social groups and you know other like less formal settings we haven't really looked at it very much in workplace settings which is why i was really really interested in applying it there so Mm. so belonging in a workplace culture really sits at the center and then i'm looking at um, what are the precursors to belonging so what is it that an organization can do that actually leads to belonging And what are some of the individual factors? Like, it's not always about the organization. It's also, you know, me in an organization, you in an organization, Mm -hmm. you in an organization. Mm -hmm. We all bring our own quirks, personalities, you know, experiences, traumas, you know, whatever. Like, we bring all of those layers with us, and so, our expectations and the way that we interact with our workplace, like you were yeah. saying about, you know, the way yeah, people yeah, have yeah. that awareness and that kind of exchange with their environment, yeah. it's it's the same in this context. So yeah. looking at what are those organizational factors and the individual factors that can contribute to belonging in the yeah. workplace, and then on the other side of that, what are the outcomes of belonging? Like when we say yeah. belonging, it's like, oh, you know, warm, fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. sunshine and, and butterflies, but there is actually a dark side to to belonging as well, especially in the context ah. of work. So Oof, I'm trying to, yeah. Mm. What to, are some of the dark sides? So um, one example is there is something that um, they refer to as good soldier syndrome. Uh-huh. And so it's very loosely, your sense of of belonging is so strong that you will forego your own best Uh interest for the sake of the team or the organization or whatever unit you feel the sense of belonging to. I think I've
0: heard about this in relation to um, the soldiers at the concentration camps Mm. during Uh World War II, Uh the Nazi concentration. Some of them just got swept along and obviously... Mm. Felt like being a good soldier, but knew what they were doing was radically wrong in terms okay. of their values, their you know beliefs, and everything else. Is yeah, that yeah, a, yeah. an extreme example? Yeah, I, I mean
1: certainly an extreme example, but yeah. I think it does certainly illustrate what the theory of belongingness talks about, which is that we have this real Mm. um, underlying need Mm. to have a sense of belonging. And if you think about it from an evolutionary context, it makes sense, right? Like if you're the odd man out, like you're dead, you know, (laughs) you need your tribe. So it's it's
3: so funny. As soon as you refer to it as good soldier syndrome, I was reading something literally two days ago about Vietnam soldiers. It was a psychiatric study done in the uh, 80s on veterans of the Vietnam War mm. uh, in Boston, and they, no, the psychiatrists basically noticed that they, were, for the most part, they were um, severely traumatized and basically detached and numb for the most part. Quite, mm. found it quite difficult to engage in a really active way with the world around them. Get them in a room and ask them to talk about their experiences of the war or what triggered their trauma. Silence. Leave enough space one of them would start, and this was like a pattern that repeated, one of them would start talking about their traumatic experience. As soon as one of them starts talking about it, they all start talking about it. And they are all suddenly, it's like their trauma's gone. They're active, they're engaged. Mm. But it seemed to only be through that sense of camaraderie. And even to the point where they gifted the psychiatrist that was doing the study a beret and started to do things that indicated that they would kind of only interact with him provided he was part of the part of the troop in a sense so there was something there that that's what allowed them to open up Mm. but the dark side of that was that by relying on that it actually allowed them to avoid what might have led to the resolution Mm -hmm. of the trauma such that they could then reintegrate and reinteract in healthy ways with say their partners or their children fascinating yeah
1: Yeah. And I think when we create those little enclaves, that can be the downside. And Mm. um, I often talk about this, you know, the paradox of belonging, which is that in order to have a sense of belonging, like Mm. somebody has to be excluded. There is no belonging without exclusion. So Mm. that's the, I think the the tricky bit Mm. is, you know, we sort of uphold it as this thing that we all ascribe to and and want to have in our lives. And Mm. yet... You know, by belonging to this it means that some people don't. Someone doesn't belong, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thinking
0: about that in the context of workplace because if you think about certain brands Mm. on the planet, some have a certain amount of shall we say, negativity Mm. associated to them. In terms of if you think about oil companies now Mm. no, fifty years ago would have a very different brand story that are associated to globally Mm. with them. So we think about oil companies like it's probably not the best brand to be associated to like if someone came in and said we love what you're doing with Unchatter we're from Shell we'd like to sponsor you <laughs> right you'd be like okay intre- probably i'm not to think about this for
2: a
3: moment yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah exactly versus you know someone coming in from uh, an ethical company like yeah, or... yeah. a b corp a right. b corp recognized company straight away they'd be yeah. so Have you looked at how belonging is associated to maybe brand values as well Mm. in terms of workforce?
1: Yes, such a good question. So not necessarily attached to brand values, but there is a a connection to pride. So um, whether or not you feel a sense of pride about the work that your Mm. organization does, can impact whether you want to have a sense of belonging. So um, the way this showed up in my research that was really interesting is I, I didn't plan it this way, but I did my first round of interviews right before COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And I did my second round of interviews exactly a year later. So. Um, Basically, you know, looking at a, a pre and post pandemic mm. wow. um, life in um, in workplace settings. And obviously lots had changed for many people. But what sure. I found fascinating in the follow up interviews is that in some ways you talked about, you know, that detachment in the the example of the Vietnam veterans. And mm. I saw that in some of the conversations with people who weren't all that that pleased with how their organizations had handled COVID. You know, maybe they thought it should have gone differently or they should have demonstrated more compassion. And there was almost this, this sense of stepping away from like, Oh, you know, but I, I don't associate with that anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, previously, if, if they saw the, you know, the values or actions that the organization was taking um, as something that, you know, really aligned with with themselves and what they, you know, perceive themselves to be about, then there's that real, that desire to have a sense of belonging. So, yeah, Ah. it definitely comes into play there.
0: So this is something that I'm... Oh, go on, dude.
3: This is something I'm really interested here with your experiences. It feels to me like there's a, a subtle but important distinction between belonging and connection. Mm-hmm. in the sense that and partially where that comes from is there's a um, a book Chasing the Screen
1: Oh yes Johan Hari Johan Hari Yes yeah, I love him is, He's...
3: Are you familiar with it? Nope So it's basically the, the book I guess is about addiction he went on this journey to understand addiction and basically what he found is this emerging body of research which shows that the opposite of addiction is connection in effect
0: mm, and okay. the cure for
3: addiction is connection and actually what causes us to seek out things that we become addicted to whether it's behavior patterns, drugs, sex, whatever it happens to be, we are doing so yeah. out of a lack of connection. Yeah, we're actually else, seeking yeah. attachment to something because we don't feel security attached internally. Okay. And it feels to me like there's, and I'm curious for your perspective, but, but yours as well, DK, on the, it feels like there's connection feels like something that doesn't necessarily need to exclude. Mm. You know, it feels mm-hmm. like we can atta- we can feel securely attached mm-hmm. and connected without needing to draw a box and say that I belong to that group, which means you don't. Mm-hmm. So it feels like That's the belonging level yeah. comes in yeah. as like another sort of cognitive layer on top of that. Yeah, am curious for your...
1: Yeah, I think that is so beautifully said. And I think you're right that belonging is more of a, a group dynamic, if you will. Yeah. You know, we don't necessarily um, talk about a sense of belonging when it's just, you know, with one other person. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, that can be true. But in general, when we look at the like the literature and the research around it, it's more about group dynamics, yeah. whereas connection can very much be like, you know, we're we're mm. connecting, we're connecting yeah. and it can be um That much, you know, on a a much smaller, smaller scale, I think, and also about connection with ourselves too. So, yeah. I was
0: thinking about connection in terms of something very distant from yourself as well.
1: You know, Mm. like
0: a a it could be as simple as a. Man United. Never lived in Man United. But yeah. I don't, by the way. But, you know, yeah. you hear a lot of people who are connected to yeah. something. They have no real connection. They have chosen to be connected yep. to it. Mm.
2: And that's valid, right? Yeah.
0: You can say I'm very connected to a certain place. Yeah. A certain time, an era. Like, yeah. I love the 1920s and their fashion. I feel connected to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have no concept of living in the 1920s, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. well, why is this? I'm thinking you. But belonging to it is, seems a little bit more deeper, mm. and a little bit more... I suppose experienced versus just a cognitive idea. Yeah,
2: interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what I took from all that. Yeah, 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 that's. I think that's um, a really good point, and it makes me think of like the world of sports, right? Like Mm. why why do sports teams, at least in the U.S., I assume elsewhere too, like Mm. you know, they're such money makers, and you know, I have I have very good friends who are like rabid fans of you know certain teams, and that's what it is, right? It is Mm. this. This sense of belonging to something, and you've got all these other people who are in it with totally. you. And um, there's a really interesting book I read a few months ago called um, "Tribe" by Sebastian Junger. I've heard of that. Yeah, so he um, just very, I guess, in a nutshell, like he he talks about how when you look at um, like major world disasters and catastrophes and things like that, whether it was war or mm. a natural disaster. And then you compare that to rates of depression and suicide mm. and mental health issues. They drop after mm. a natural disaster or war. And the idea is mm. that it gives people something to unite around. You know, yeah. think about, you know. First Earth, uh, earthquake.
3: Yes. Seems to be like a good example. Of, yes, exactly. From what I hear of people who were on the ground at the time and living there, it just seems to have been this had this catalyzing effect.
1: Yeah, and how good does it feel? Like, I wasn't here in Christchurch when that happened, but I a reference point for me is nine um, eleven in the U.S. Yeah, you know, sure. like I was I was sure. seventeen, I guess, when when that happened, and it was yeah. like you all of a sudden felt like every person you saw was you know like your brother yeah. or sister and yeah. you know you mm. just were like long lost family and everyone's yeah. flying their flags and you know there's this real sense of solidarity and it feels good yeah. right of like course. that's why this matters to us
3: i kind of wonder what the what the when that isn't the case though and why so i was doing some yeah. research i've been doing i've been doing work with um with one ewe in particular in the last little while and as I was starting to get more engaged in engaging with Maoridom generally, started to do more research into the peace process in Northern Ireland, because I was kind of stepping into these spaces where mm. there's uh, often government entities and iwi, bicultural kind of, and it's just this, like it's just kind of trying to connect across worldviews. So I was intrigued to understand a bit more about the Northern Irish peace process, which was kind of trying to do something similar. And is often heralded as like a really good example of a of a peace process that mm. kind of worked. It led to a, you know a ten years peace.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: When I was diving into that, I came across a World Health Organization a longitudinal study which looked at post conflict zones and the uh, rates of things like addiction, mm. predisposition to mental health, suicide, youth incarceration, these sorts of things in the aftermath of conflict. And they found that so in Northern Ireland in particular. Um, rates skyrocketed in the aftermath of the peace ah. agreement being signed. There was more peace walls, which are walls that divide two communities in Northern Ireland. There was, I can't remember the exact number, but there was something like within two or three years of the peace agreement signed, there was three times the number of peace walls that there had been wow. prior to the peace agreement mm. being signed. So I'm curious, like for some reason in that setting, there was a, yeah. and I don't, it's not sure why, but I just Is intrigued it, to...
0: You mentioned it, I think, earlier, In our Hmm. DNA, the idea to be a tribe. Maybe the tribal things are already set
3: there. It's like there's already tribal kind of identities really well established. And then
0: to be saying, now we're all the same.
1: Exactly. And Ah, there's a pushback of that
0: to go, no, I want to regain literally, you know, but figuratively, like by putting up boundaries. Yeah, we want to retain what we've got as mm. no. This is us. Yeah, yeah. and that That's is belonging,
1: right? Like, I mean, yeah. war is, I think, a perfect example. Like, yeah. it's it's you and me against them, and you know, we belong together, and you don't. Mm. It's that exclusionary yeah. piece. And yeah. as you said, you know, then peace treaty comes along, and it's like, wait, what? Now we're all on the same side. Like this, you know, yeah. this, I this felt hurt. better. Yeah, I don't it, feel
3: like I've had a chance to express my view. I mean, yeah, we, it
0: might have been yeah. Heard. If we say yes, that is, and we've all got it built in. Like we've all got very individual stories that match each other from a perspective of, I suppose, nationhood,
2: Mm. right? Mm. Being
0: American, so the way you come with an idea of what that is. Most people who say, she's American, have some kind of idea. Mm. But you also bring with it, I'm American, Mm. you know, (laughs) and I have something to do with that. Uh, Or I understand what that means, sorry. Same for you, Mm. being Northern Irish, right? And same for me, being Welsh. We have this cultural Mm. identity that's baked into us that we were raised in. So there's some nurture and yeah. some nature going on maybe as well. Yeah. Uh, learned DNA responses to things. However, more more um, recently I've just been thinking it's just a bunch of stories that just mm-hmm. got compounded and compounded mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're compounded to historically retain something of yeah. pure essence, which could be a bloodline or it could be just a storyline or uh, a racial line or something, right? Was I'm just thinking if you take a step back we're just a species mm-hmm. that all need to have yeah. a unique story within it yeah when it's like actually our unique story is a collective one
3: well I think it is and it isn't so this okay. is it I've had this like, I've had this like kind of mental model of indigeneity at two at two levels for the last couple of years and one is one is the like which is often talked about now is as, as you know indigeneity and the very the reconnection to our indigeneity being key to where we need to move in terms of how we relate sure. to mm. the rest of the natural world. So that's, the, that's at this kind of like um, macro level, like indigeneity is a general kind of thing,
2: mm-hmm.
3: as belonging to a place or having come from a specific place. But then there's there's the uniquely localized form of a particular kind of manifestation of indigeneity, which is linked to that that national identity stuff i think initially mm-hmm. before nation states you know where yeah. we had a particular whether it's an iwi or whether it's a it's a you know a uh the Unails or a clan from from wales or mm-hmm. whatever that is unique to a specific bioregion. that that cultural identity at one at one time prior to nation states and the sort of centralization of the services that kind of look after our lives for us rather yeah. than giving us agency over our lives carried with it the stories that allowed us to be in right relationship with land, Mm -hmm. carried with it the stories about how I lived in Australia for seven years and some of the, um, some of the stories associated and the Aboriginal um, groups still carry about the land and how it has changed Mm -hmm. through time and how to, some of the information encoded in those cultural stories is, you know, Information that's critical to surviving a one in two thousand year famine, yeah. you know, because it, it has information about what food might be able to be cultivated under certain conditions mm. and how to go about that. Sure. And so, I feel like a lot of Western or, or you know, co- sort of colonial nations of which, you know, me being here is kind of part of that. I'm kind of feel like a reflection I think of all of us being here. Yeah, in some way, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. Totally. And it often, I feel like we hear those stories as, as nursery rhymes or mm. as fairy tales, oh, rather yeah. than actually understanding that there's deep, deep knowledge encoded within yeah. them. And often yeah. they are used in, a, I mean, back to poetry, they're used, mm. they use a non-literal, a mythological structure that sure. aids memory, because yeah. mm-hmm. there was no writing. It mm-hmm. aids memory retention. Totally. It's a poetic structure, a mythological structure mm-hmm. that's story based that allows those stories to be repeated. Because if they are repeated and the information changes, yeah. and then that event comes along and you need that information, that's a big problem for your survival. Yeah. And what's unique about mm-hmm. Australia
0: is it's more encoded with the land. Mm. than other places I think because if you think about I can only speak from a Welsh mm. um, Celtic perspective mm. and some of the stories like Beth Gelleth and stuff like that, mm. Braith Galat, which was a story about a dog saving a baby um, um. and stuff like that but the m- myths now, yeah. they could have been half real especially because yeah. in Wales you can find the gravesite of this dog um, so it might have no, had right. some half truths, right? Yeah. But we're talking like I think this was like fourteen hundred or something like that. So quite a yeah. while ago. Yeah. It could have been then baked or encoded with a with a maybe a, a virtue yeah. virtue in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you learn from this story yeah. mm-hmm. and a value. A lesson about how to live a good life there we
3: go. in yeah. relationship yeah. with yeah. something. Indeed. Yeah, totally. It's so a it's not to be
0: dismissed I just think it's fascinating and these stories become bigger than probably when they started.
3: Yeah, you know, they can, um, they can. But
0: it depends if they have a real deep truth to them yep. that helps you survive a famine. I'm yeah. going to give that a little bit more weight than teach me how <laughs> to live a better life, which I kind of not already know, but we can learn that through different different things.
3: I think that's the thing for me about, and to regeneration, like regeneration as a process is mm. really the way that a living system, whether it's a person or a community or a plant or a forest, evolves to great, towards greater health and vitality in partnership mm. with its environment. And the stories we tell ourselves can either become barriers to regeneration if they lead us to believe something without actually considering its relevance for us right now Mm. or it can lead us into a deeper inquiry Mm -hmm. about and and for me that's the kind of value of it is is it is it inviting us into inquiry is it inviting us to Mm -hmm. really consider our circumstance and to reflect and to because that's a process that's always allowing us to yeah, ask check. more questions about yeah. our environment, mm-hmm. enter into relationship with it, and edge into relationship with it more and more. So that's yeah. kind that's of, meaningful. with anything, I always have that kind of, I always have that check, like, is it bringing us into relationship or is it causing us to mm-hmm. just yeah. say yes or no blindly without mm-hmm. really surveying the landscape first? It's yeah. fascinating.
0: Well, I, you, sorry, go on. No, you jump in. I, I,
1: I was just going to say, I think it's also about whether or not we respond to that invitation because yeah. I think that's that's the difference sometimes in living a life intentionally as we were saying before and just you know kind Mm -hmm. of floating along and um, I actually would be keen to hear from both of you because as we were talking about it's I think a common thread we all have this idea of trying to live intentionally and putting a lot of of thought and care into what we do in the world and just the way that we live life in general and so Mm -hmm. yeah I'm curious like to see for both of you where you think that comes from like how you kind of came to this as a as a way of being, if it's developed over time and hmm. what the what the root of it is for both of you. That's
2: a really
3: good question.
0: That is great. Over to you. <laughs> <laughs> got in first. <laughs>
3: well oh, that's a that's an interesting one. I feel like in on some level there's always been a bit of there's always been a drive towards and a curiosity about um I was very fortunate with my, in so many ways, um, so uncountable ways, my parents were so, uh, so generous in instilling us with a sense of um, our potential um, Ah. and how we could contribute to the world. Mm. So I kind of did always feel this sense that like, there's like something I just kind of want to kind of do in the world and I don't know what it is and I don't know how to give it and there was always that tension between feeling like I have a lot that I want to give to the world and feeling kind of restrained or restricted Uh, when I was younger that was that was with mental health struggles I had a long I had years of quite severe struggles with mental health which in a a really amazing way provided the impetus because it was that was the wall that I was determined to climb over You know, it was like the focal point of my life for probably six, seven years. Mm. Um, I was working and other things, but that was kind of all like just in some ways that all felt like just uh, like instruments and tools to Mm -hmm. help me learn how to get uh, on top of some of the difficulties I had mental health wise or Mm -hmm. otherwise so that I could kind of better myself and give back to the world. So there was some it feels like there was something already always there. Um, and then, yeah, the definitely feel like my parents kind of instilled me with this sense that, like, no, you, you, there is something for you to give, and you have a right to give it, and the world mm-hmm. needs it. Um, and then the third thing is actually that I consider a lot of the, a lot of the sort of challenge or the difficulty of um, some aspects of of my life as the greatest gifts that I received. You know, there was just certain things that just gave. Me the they gave me the opportunity to, to grow in, in ways that I could never have predicted, mm. and that instilled that kind of curiosity. I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What he said.
2: For that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nah, you're not getting No, nah, nah, yeah. <laughs> I'm <It was amazing, laughs> not amazing. It was.
0: I don't think I am.
2: Ah,
3: that's an interesting answer.
0: I'm not hmm. being dramatic, but I don't. I think I'm just responding most of the time. To what's possible versus living intentionally, and through what you described. Mm. Um, yeah, most. If I reflect, like I'm 45 now, so I'm getting on a lot older than you, pair. <laughs>
1: yeah, I just turned 20 last month. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. 30,
0: oh, 31. I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, put that on. You. <sighs> Well, you you reach a certain maturity point and then you can reflect back a little bit, not saying everything's done, but you've got a little bit of grounding behind you, a little bit of footing and go, oh, yeah, there's a bit of path has been treaded there and kind of make some things out. And a lot of my reflection points only in the last couple of years have brought me to the more confidence about doing this, Mm. about I have no right doing this from a perspective of creating a platform like Creative Wally to invite people and have conversations around a. A beautiful lit space. <laughs> this is odd as hell, right? Like, great. Who it's awesome, great. In the yes. In all the wonderful yeah. ways. But why Why do I get to do it is my point. And I'm not mm. only because I thought I could. Because you're dating? Is my point. Yeah, yeah, but I thought I could, right? Yeah. Who gives me permission to do this? Me, right? So I suppose the intentional bit is only me going, well, how can I best scratch my own itch, which is mm. I like people. People give me energy positively. On the whole, there's some people who don't, definitely. And, all know them. <laughs> and then some people you collide into, that definitely suck,
1: right? And yeah. it's
0: just, okay, I've got to deal with that. But on the whole, I like collaborating, I like chatting, I like learning. Mm-hmm. So this is a manifest of that. Exactly the same as creative leadership, that conference I came up with. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And bankroll myself. Again, nobody starts conferences, yep. especially a couple of years ago in the, in the climate. Mm. but it was just like I want to go to something that I've been to in the past like the hatches mm. or the yeah, C2s and yeah. stuff but it, it's not here so I'm going to do yeah. that same with the TEDx you know no one was running TEDx in Wellington I'll do it yeah. yeah, like then yeah but I don't think I'm j- as selfish so I suppose I've been back to being more selfish than <laughs> living selflessly into the world mm. I don't know if I'm doing what you described
3: there are always a there are always a it's always a tension, right? It's like every, even, yeah. even the things that appear to be, they're never selfless. Like it's always mm. like Gosh, yeah. in my own, yeah, my own journey felt very similar. Yeah, I was doing it because I wanted to mm. fulfill myself in some way. For sure. It wasn't, definitely wasn't driven solely by like, yeah, sure, there was an urge that like, yeah, yeah, there's something that I can give here and that's, but there yeah. was definitely a desire to like get beyond something in myself or, you know, exactly. find some peace and contentment in myself that drove that. Mm.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'm that level of clever yet.
1: yeah (laughs) i'd be honest (laughs) that's
0: all like i was beautiful front and i was like yeah yeah i understand all that don't know if that applies to me Fair, yeah
1: i get what you're saying and uh, i heard you you say towards the beginning that you know i was just responding you know Mm. to what it was that you wanted to to see in the world so you just created it right but i think what i'm getting at is that not everyone would respond in that way some people would be like oh bummer it doesn't exist like Oh, no, you know, that sucks. And you were yeah. like, oh, bummer, it doesn't exist. I guess I'll create it. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. a very different and really beautiful way of, of responding to, yeah, to an absence of something that you wanted to see in the world. Why mm. did you
0: respond that way? Mm. Don't know. I'll get back to you on it.
2: Cool. I'm going to hold you there. Sometimes
0: you yeah. don't know, right? Yeah. Totally, you, yeah, yeah, make yeah. stuff up, but I don't think. That's cool. Know. Like, I definitely, like, all the way through my 20s and that, my career was a responsive career um, as well. It was just following my nose yeah, rather yeah. than being really, truly intentional with things.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've
0: given myself permission now just to, just to be, right? Mm-hmm. And not to yeah. be strategic and mm-hmm. all those things. Mm. Well, in 10 years, I'm going to... Because I don't have that mind to think that mm. far ahead because I'm scared about that far ahead. Maybe I don't know what it is. Mm. in deep now, but maybe that's what it is. As you know, simple as. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: I hear that though, and I I think yeah. I've gotten to a similar point. Like I used to be very strategic, and I you know have all the color coded spreadsheets, and I still love a good color coded spreadsheet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know I was very structured about you know this is my goal, and mm. here are the micro steps to get there, and here's the habits that support that, and and that is a really. Um, mm successful I suppose way of going about it like you can achieve your goals if you know if you have that kind of a structure in place but Mm. at a certain point yeah what you're saying is sometimes it's nice to just be and not not have to be strategic or you know be this or be that and Mm. I think that it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about with this thread of you know noticing and kind of sinking into just interacting with our environment and those yeah. are the things that you miss, I think, when you're like, no, this is my plan, you know, tick 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 and yeah. and you miss everything else that's yeah. happening around you. Totally. So yeah.
3: Absolutely.
0: I'm interested as well in how you got to be where you are physically. Because we're mm. all far from yeah, home. True, yeah. true. And I don't really know your origin story of like the real kernel of well, I mm. moved to New Zealand because <sighs> like it could be as simple as one liner, right? Mm. So I'd love to hear because for me, just to fill in my bit before you start, yeah, yeah, is someone offered me a job I didn't really want, huh. but made it interesting, right? Because ah. I knew I would walk in with skilled migrant category visa, ah. so that would give me residency off the back. Ah. I, already had, I already had a brother here, I would visited before, I liked it. It was ah. either here, Hong Kong, or Portland, Oregon.
2: <gasps> wow. ah. That was all on my list,
0: right? Because I was bored of the UK, and I felt hemmed in, and I started travelling and seeing the world, I want to live somewhere else. So those are the three on my list. And then someone, like I say, just made it easy because it was an offer. Huh. Come here, start work. It felt good. They were going to buy into my businesses. Didn't happen in the end. But there we go. Yeah, um, yeah. So all that drew me to yeah. this place. Mm. right? And then on, I'm 10 years June. I'm going to be here. Wow. So it's wow. coming up a day. And only now do I feel, okay, settled. But mm. now I'm getting a little bit hungry again. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I'm hungry for more experiences, right? Mm. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. But anyway, so that's yeah. my origin story. How did you guys end up
1: here? Um, Well, I haven't been here as long as you, but I um, was living the the highfalutin corporate life in the U.S. and um, just got to that stage, I guess, as many of us probably do, where I was like, is this what I want to be doing with my life, you know, like 20 years from now? Is, is my legacy going to be like you know being a you know senior executive at a at a big corporation? And I'm not saying that isn't a perfectly honorable aim, but I think for me, um, much as you described, I was like, no, there's you know there was that tension. I'm like, there's something else that I'm supposed to be doing in the world, and this isn't quite it. And so, as much as there were aspects of you know being in leadership and other things about that world that I really enjoyed, um, I. Left my job and sold my big, fancy house and my car and everything I owned, mm. and decided to travel for a while and just kind of see what what came up. Mm. Um, travel, I think, is such a powerful mm. force in terms of opening your mm. your perspective on what's, what's possible really, I think not just in a sense of, you know, what the world looks like, but even, you know, in an internal way, like you look at everything differently, or at least I did when I started traveling, it opened a lot, a lot of things up. So after doing some traveling, I, um, knew that I had always wanted to get my PhD and I wanted to do it someplace internationally. And right. mm. so I started looking everywhere and one of my good friends in the US who was getting her PhD said, um, my best piece of advice is don't look at the program, look for a researcher who's doing work that you're interested in doing nice. and and go there. And nice. it was such good advice. Nice. So. I found someone at UC and reached out and we had some email conversation and it was one of those things where, you know, whether you believe in fate and things happen as they're meant to and all that, it was, you know, just boom, 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 things fell into place. Yeah. And yeah, before I knew it, I was, I was landing in Christchurch. and it's yeah, a big
0: so, move though.
1: Yeah, huge. yeah. Did you
0: ever lived outside of U.S. before that? No,
1: no, I yeah traveled but never lived outside of the U.S. And Ah. and my I don't come from a maybe different from you. Um, Like my family is not the the traveling, you know, like the world is your oyster kind Mm. of type. Like I grew up on a farm in a very, very small community. And there were aspects of that that were that were beautiful. But I. I always felt that kind of Mm. that itch or that, you know, big question mark of like, what else is out there? And I don't think this is what what is is it for me? And Mm. so I guess in some ways, maybe I wanted to take the biggest leap that I possibly could. (laughs) And and so I did. I'm about as far away as I could possibly get, (laughs) which is is hard sometimes. But I also feel like at least for now, I, I ended up where I belong.
3: Which was what, like two and a half years ago, three. How long ago was yeah, that? Yeah,
1: it was um, like the middle of 2018. So okay. it'll be yeah, coming up three years. Coming up three years. Yeah, wow. just a just a newbie though compared compared to guy to to, Yeah, yeah, totally.
3: totally. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. where yeah. are your family in the US? North Dakota. Oh, so quite far.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah, they're yeah, right close. up on the the Canadian border. So huh. um, yeah. Ah. Huh. Cool. Yeah. beautiful place to grow up but I yeah, sure. yeah definitely felt like the the odd one out in my my growing up years I think and mm. just that curiosity for hmm. surely there's more out there
3: yeah interesting
1: yeah how about you what's your story
3: kind of similar in the corporate sense I guess yeah. so i I was in Australia I lived there for like six sixish years I think and was working for I was with a corporate that I've been with for probably four or five years and then I went and did startup stuff for a while with a, with a really cool company in, in Melbourne and, um, I'd been living in Australia for about five years and kind of five, six years. And with that sort of sense of, is it intention of maybe I want to go back to Europe and be closer to family and Mm. is this sort of where I want to stay? And I just wasn't sure. I just didn't really have any clarity in myself. And then I got to a point where I was doing a course with a woman called Margaret Wheatley back in Europe and we had two week-long retreats, one at the start of 2018 and one towards the end. I was working in Melbourne and I kind of partially did that course because I was like, maybe I'll meet, I didn't really have that many contacts or or like connections in Europe that if I move back, I might, you know, kind of really spend a bit a lot of time building connections with. So I was using that course as a way to build relationships and decided for the second uh, retreat at the end of 2018, to go back and i left basically decided to leave my job with the intention that i was going to so my visa was tied to the job and i was kind of like decided to leave the job for personal reasons and accept just i kind of threw my visa problems into the hands of fate and accepted that i'm going to leave the job i'll go back for this retreat and there's another visa that I'll apply for. And if I get it and, and yeah, sweet, I'll go back to Australia. And if not, see what happens. I was pretty confident I'd get it and it would be fine. And I'd be back in Australia before I knew it. Went to Europe. The processing time for the visa was about, I don't know, like a week and a half on the Australian immigration website. Okay. So it was like, and I was back in Europe for like six weeks, so it like, it'd be fine. Applied in November. Visa was approved in mid-February. Oh. Of, of 2019. Oh, wow. So I was like, okay, so I ended up cancelling my return flight, stayed in Europe, met my ex-partner while I was back in Europe. Um, and she was Austrian and we were in Vienna at the time. And I was kind of going back and forth between Vienna and Ireland and was doing a bit of work in, in Europe and, mm. and had a, still had a client in Australia. I was doing, doing sort of in, independent consulting. And uh, yeah, and then in, I think it was like January, we were still... My ex and I were, were planning on going back to Australia when the visa was approved. And then the visa just like, it was like, oh, yeah, it'll be next week. And then we'll book our flight. Cool. Next week came. No, no email from. So we got to a point where we were like, our, life, our lives are just on hold. Like we need yeah. to make a decision about what we're doing. And then completely, quite like fairly unexpectedly, um, Cathy, my ex, was accepted to the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, mm. um, which is a program here for social entrepreneurs that has yeah. a, an attachment to uh, NZ Immigration and a visa associated with it. So, um, yeah, Kati was accepted to that, and we were like, well, this isn't what we planned. We hadn't really thought, thought that that was, you know, on the cards, but actually, well, looks pretty cool. Quite similar to Melbourne, where I'd been living. Yep. I'd spent a bit of time in New Zealand before and, and really enjoyed it, so we were like, let's just give it a go and go on an adventure. And so, so we did. We booked a one-way flight, got out here, like, we went to India for a bit, and then came out here end of Feb, something like that. And we're kinda of straight into it. We had like EHF Welcome Week it was like yeah, a week course. and a half yeah. after we landed. Yeah. And then New Frontiers, which I'm not sure if you were mm.
0: I was not. No. But we met soon after you were. Yeah, arrived. It was in a couple yeah. of
3: weeks after Topaz, I think, introduced that. Sure? Yeah. Oh.
0: Yeah. So yeah. And you know Topaz.
3: I know you know Topaz. Yeah. It's another connection. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Well so Yeah, I love Topaz very much. And so, yeah, he introduced DK and I, and yeah, that's it. That's kind of how I got here.
1: So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Six degrees and and all that. Two degrees, degrees, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. If that,
3: if that. It's just so, yeah.
1: I think, especially when you're in the kind of um, social entrepreneur type space, it's, yeah. It's an insatiable space. That's for sure.
0: Small world full of good. Good humans. Yeah, Yeah. that's for sure. That's what you find. That's, That's for sure. Good. I'm going
3: to take us like randomly back to another point. I yeah, something yeah. I've been wondering for a yeah. while since you started. You were talking about, um, Tash, your, I think it was your experiences in research. DK was kind of wondering about the um, measuring some of the warmth and his experiences with his work and you know collecting all of this stuff but then being able to translate that in a way that is considered real data you know and I'm curious for your perspectives having been on your journey is there like key pointers where you mentioned that more recently there's been research that is starting to really tap into some of those more complex aspects Mm. of humanity and life Mm. are there key pointers or key things that you are like these are things to bear in mind for studies or for research or for data collection Mm. that is tapping into that
1: Mm. are you asking like pointers for for doing research or like being able to kind of put a research spin on some of those more nebulous ideas i guess the
3: thing the question the thing that i'm wondering i guess and this comes back to warm data a little bit is Mm. how do you communicate warm data like, is there a uh, way that through, say, for example, you wanted to do a research study and there was key questions that you were going to ask, you're engaging in a complex space. How do you do that in a way that allows you to capture mm, the sort of data that can lead to, mm, you know, change or influence within, say, academia or just the way that people are kind of expecting? Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I'll, I'll, I guess, tell you a little bit about how I've gone about my, um, my interview process and just some of... sticking points there sounds awesome um i think one of the the key things is consistency so you know it's not just having conversations i was probably a little poetic when i was talking about it before like oh it's just like this conversation Mm -hmm. but you know obviously you want to be consistent in the way that you're um you know you're posing your questions so that what you're getting is um is legitimate and i think the other piece that Um, I have found really interesting in qualitative research especially is that you're often not asking about the concept itself because if I say Mm. you know DK like tell me about your experiences of, of belonging. Eh, eh, you know like and right. I ask you the same question you know belonging is mm. going to mean two different th- very different things probably to each of you based totally, on your yeah. experiences and so how can I really yeah. collate that that data into something meaningful so yeah, I mean, it's often um asking more yeah. general questions and seeing what it is that comes up for people so I might um like one of my early interview questions was um tell me about what an average day of work looks like for you. Mm. I'm not talking at all about belonging or connection. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, other things like, you know, do you have any friendships at work? Or mm. um, when do you feel most valued? So it's it's finding some of those, um, those other broader topics that, allow people to just you know sort of wax on and then once you've got this really rich set of data that's when you can put it all up on the wall and see the threads and the pinpoints coming together so it's um i think that would be probably the the most important thing from from my perspective that's been helpful is you start out here rather than with the actual concept that you're going after and you'll you'll uncover a lot that way. Yeah, I
0: love it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a distillation process then.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the um, the mm-hmm. technical term is grounded theory. Um, so mm-hmm. it's what like Brene Brown uses when she does her work with shame and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. and it's just that process of you know asking a set of questions to you know many many different people and then you know doing the coding and saying like oh that came up here and here and here and here in these you know perhaps slightly different but you know Mm -hmm. still common ways still comparative
3: mm -hmm. it still allows you to have a sort of reference point for comparison yeah I saw that you were a dare to lead certified I saw that on your your LinkedIn and went ah that's been on my radar for a while that's right yeah
0: we did that one didn't we?
1: yes yeah
0: did you do it as well yeah, I don't think we did it together, but we did the oh, same God. thing, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I was trying to remember, though, after our conversation, I think maybe we were at the same one. Yeah, we were. We, yeah, because you, cause were you were came on the down table. to Christchurch, yeah. It? We were like, ha, Yeah, no, yeah I, we were, sorry. Just across Girl. the room, like, hello. Nice. Yeah, we didn't
0: get much time, because I was yeah. there with Jose.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's quite, Hello, yeah.
0: Jose again. He gets shouts out a few times. thing, <laughs> yeah, <a> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to say that. Yeah, like, yeah. Ah, again, Jose always gets in <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I Bless like him. It. Again, connections, right? Totally, yeah. But um, I was going to ask you a question about the research from a perspective. Was there anyone, anything that really surprised you that came out of it? Because obviously you mm-hmm. do come with a certain level of expectation. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And a body of research already that you're trying to discover yeah. if that's true or not. Or yeah, the, the, was there anything that you were like, oh, didn't didn't expect that?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say there were two things. Um, one was the, and this is is one of the of three emergent themes that I talk about in my my thesis, um, and it was the extent to which people really want to feel like they can be who they are and bring their, their Mm. full selves, you know, their quirks and idiosyncrasies and all of that to work and how that can be a real barrier to a sense of belonging if you, you know, don't have that. And it's out of the, you know, several interviews that I conducted, there was really only one person who said like, yeah, you know, I can like... I can be me, and right. that is completely accepted and yeah. I think the process that people go through to to test that it's like, oh well let me I'll say this thing and back to noticing right and paying yeah. attention and that awareness mm-hmm. I'll say this thing or do this thing, and then it's that stepping back and like, oh you know how mm-hmm. did people respond like what was the you know what was the change in the climate when I when I did that and then totally. shifting accordingly nice. and so it's yeah i I think I wasn't. Um, I wasn't anticipating how common of a, um, of a theme that yeah. would be for people and how much it would matter. Um, the other thing I would say, and this came up more in my post-COVID interviews, is um, I feel like it's a bit, I'm like, man, it really puts a spin in, in everything that I do and talk about. But how much small talk matters. Um, so lots of people really honed in on that as as something that they really noticed the absence of, you know, when you're working from home, where, mm. you know, where's yeah. your water cooler office gossip yeah, all yeah, of a yeah. sudden, like, totally. I'm not, you know, bumping into you, you know, yeah. making a coffee in the kitchen anymore. and. Um, although it did translate to um, like DMs. Some people were like, oh, you oh, know, okay. I love my leader because she's like, you know, DMing me all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, as human beings, like we still find ways Other to, others. you know, to scratch that itch. But that was something that hmm. I, yeah, I guess I wasn't anticipating that mm. being such a, you know, a sticky piece of, of people feeling like, oh, you know, I'm I'm noticed as a human being and, and mm. they actually care that I'm here and I want to be here because like hey we're chit-chatting for you know yeah. three minutes before a meeting about you know yeah. what you did over the weekend that stuff really matters it's and it's most, so simple yeah. yeah
3: so this is this is a perfect time and I'm gonna show you both and give you both a hard copy of this report <laughs> that we have just, oh, hold on. just finished. Very much. Very much. Very much. because <laughs> the, re- the reason I'm sharing this now is because this My work in in housing and community stuff generally, that's such a common uh, thread is the degree to which the design of physical space fosters transient interactions is yes. really, really critical to whether community functions well or not. Wow! So if you have spaces that actually allow for unexpected interaction, like shared laundry facilities or co- like gotcha. community notice oh. boards, or yeah. where you might bump into the person that because if we if we're given complete choice and control, we'll often choose psychological safety at the expense of yes. other things and lock ourselves in a cave. Yep. Or we'll only associate with the people we f- feel comfortable with, yeah. when actually it might be for it might be in our best interest and the best interest of the group, if we occasionally bump into the person that we maybe have a bit of tension with and yeah. wouldn't actually choose to interact with, if, if we were given full reign of, of choice. Yeah. And so this Aww. was like, we did this.
0: Well done. Ah, oh, thank you. Because I know this is no small thing. Yes. We're going to, I want to talk briefly about that, but just to finish off the point. There's about- another
3: point I want to finish on that as okay. well, actually.
0: there's
1: something. Oh, that- I have something too. <laughs> Let's, Yeah.
0: In terms of designing uh, events and things, I've been designing the idea of trying to get people to collide more than twice in any experience. And it's a very under, Ah. it's very hidden Mm. strategy that I've created. So you can easily do that is just by moving one food to having three food stations, right? And then they go there and rather than just one line, there's multiples of lines, Mm. but then they Go off from that quicker, and then they bump into other mm. people rather than just one way. You know, all these yeah. little things. <laughs> Having longer spaces for time, like the afternoon teas and the yep. morning teas, rather than making fifty minutes, make yep. them an hour. You yeah. know, then boom, boom, boom. Try to set up little stations so you have to literally walk and come back to mm. because yeah. And the idea there is, if you meet someone for the first time mm. at anything, you'll just have that high level mm-hmm. kind of safe psychologically. Say, mm-hmm. hey, so where are you from? What do you do? Yeah. You know, who can I associate you with mm-hmm. in my brain? So I'm asking you questions about that. But it's quite nice, but yeah. it's very, you know, yeah. it's not very bold or audacious, right? Yeah. The second one is like, hey, we met earlier. You're that lady who does uh, the, the the group thing. Mm. And, ch- and chat, thank you, yeah. yes, right? And then you go, so yeah, I was thinking about that because I just had a session. And then so now I'm adding mm-hmm. to the, the yeah. discovery of us and then we're yeah. like chatting deeper. The third time I meet Tash, like, I wanted you... Introduce you to Ben over there. Because yeah. we were talking earlier, and now I've met Ben, and now yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So it's usually the second or third, definitely the fourth time of yeah. that collision yeah. that trust is built. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm. Which comes back to, well, that. if I'm not my true self, yes. if I'm not having those three minute conversations about yeah. what I did over mm. the weekend, that I can again follow up. You said you watched that film. I watched it too now. Yeah. Now yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> but if didn't have that, I wouldn't have that connection with you. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. we wouldn't discover that we really love Ridley Scott or whatever it is. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that as mm-hmm. you can actually lift that out and use it as a design yes. framework
2: yeah.
3: for
0: colliding people to build that trust, which then comes back to this. But you wanted to make Yeah, there was point, another point. Was so you those. shared
3: something about the fact that it was the the uh, taking a step back afterwards and noticing mm. what's changed mm. is the big thing. Oh, nice. That's where a lot of the information and useful kind of value comes from. And there's a, there's a concept that I work with, which comes from Gregory Bates initially, and I think came from cybernetics theory initially, Mm -hmm. but it basically is about how living organisms evolve through time and how they take in information that allows them to change in useful ways. And it's really about, so like if you literally close your eyes and you touch the table with your finger, you'll feel the texture of of the table. Mm -hmm. And then if you move your finger just a little bit so that you're still touching a part of the tablecloth, it's the same texture, and you actually get very little information about of mm. whether or not, like, how much distance is there between them. Yeah. You can't actually, if you didn't know that, you know, if you came into this room blindfolded, you wouldn't really be able to distinguish much about what object it might be that you're touching. Mm. But then if you go and touch something like, say, the book, mm. oh, right. the difference yeah. between the two sensory experiences you're having is greater, mm-hmm. which actually gives you more information about of course. what is... Happening mm. in your environment, yeah, which allows mm. you to. Make. Stuff. Yeah. So yeah. it's the, the difference between things is often what makes the difference. Yeah. Lovely, which is kind of what that concept comes from. Mm. So it feels very. Mm. I just love how that there's that fractal quality of yeah. that shows up at the level of like yeah. how uh, how you know single celled organisms interact with their environment, <laughs> right up to how yes. you engage with communities in a workplace. Yeah, you know?
1: yeah, and there's so many. I think common ties here. There were um, there was something you mentioned before that. I wanted to follow up on actually a couple things, but one was um, the this idea that um, you know we all have a tendency to lock ourselves in a cave and you know stay yeah. where it feels safe, and that's so true, right? And yeah. there's been some really cool research, which I think has gotten a little more um, publicity now post pandemic about mm. loose ties. So these people mm. who are just sort of on the on the periphery, you know, like our our oh, like... I literally
0: thought loose ties. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like... <laughs> Thank you. What I mean for qualifying yeah. that? Yeah, yes, on, so, you know, you can, you can I kind of wish I kind
3: of wish you hadn't qualified and just gone off on a ten-minute run. <laughs> yeah. well, like like <laughs> like, I don't see the relevance here, but fair enough. Yeah. I'm, just gonna
1: go with sorry. I'm also a fashion <laughs> expert, <laughs> if you
0: didn't know. Nice. It shows, it shines through the I do apologize. Oh, so great. loose ties on the periphery. Oh. People on the periphery.
1: Yes, uh, acquaintances yeah. and how. Mm-hmm. Um, how much that actually adds to our sense of well-being. So it's like, you know, the cashier at the supermarket, the barista who, you know, knows your name, the, you know, person you pass walking their dog every day when you're on your morning run. Like yeah. those kinds of people that you don't have a relationship with necessarily, but mm. but they're there and maybe you, you know, have a friendly hello and mm. um and so they've done some really interesting research showing that when we have those small interactions, even if we're someone who identifies as like, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert or I'm shy, and, yeah. you know, that, that would make me uncomfortable. If you you know kind of force those people to to do that anyway, like it actually raises our levels of you know happiness and well-being yes, to yeah. to have those connections. So when those are taken away, yeah. like in COVID, when all of a sudden you know like we're not in the shops anymore and we're keeping our distance mm-hmm. and you know those kinds of interactions go away, it really has an impact on on our sense of well-being and you know mental health as For as a sure. whole. Yeah. yeah, I feel
3: like I've read some research about. So the Vegas, do you know the Vegas nerve? Yeah, How much yeah. About, so yeah. The Vegas yeah. nerve. You know I don't know, know
0: you much, much about. Body, but I'm aware of yeah, it. longest nerve it's in the, long, the body, yes. associated
3: with a lot of relational stuff. So mm-hmm. it's very related to facial expression and the musculature of the face and things that are used to indicate whether or not we're safe or mm-hmm. anxious. Or, and there, I'm pretty sure I read some research a while ago linked to that, which showed a was linked to stimulation of the vagus nerve and facial expression in first interaction with someone mm. versus second, third, fourth. So oh. if you're in a transient interaction with someone, you don't have the layer of story associated with right. this person wants something from me and you know triggered from whatever. And you're just there. You're just in the experience of relating to them. Mm-hmm. But then you meet them a third and a fourth time or a fifth time or a sixth time within specific contexts and su- suddenly other things start to happen and it can actually trigger responses in that relational part of the body mm. that then... I suspect is triggered from past experiences, mm-hmm. which then might cause that us sense. to tense up in certain ways mm-hmm. or yeah. to respond in certain ways that feel less fluid, mm-hmm. perhaps than just like that mm-hmm. momentary, you know, interaction, the fluidity that often comes with just yeah. being with a stranger.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, it goes,
0: sorry. I was, I was just, just gonna really say, it goes to show
1: this. like how aware you have to be of those things. Yeah, but yes, yeah, 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 totally.
0: Tagline Give some love creating to housing that puts people and the planet first. Yeah, tell me about what you hope this is going to achieve and what is it, first of all.
3: Yeah. Uh, so it's the culmination of about nine months of work. Mm-hmm. Um, started off so Sharon Bryant, um, who is, um, has a charitable trust, the Piff Foundation, basically came to, to James and I, James Bushel Motif, mm-hmm. and, and basically said she had a piece of land initially and wanted to know what she could do on that land that would not make an out of control wildfire worse in the housing mm. crisis you know how do I, yeah. what can i do here that's not just going to make this massive issue more problematic yep. so we had some ideas about that and we explored that and then th- but through that we kind of came to the realization that there was more questions than answers mm. and a lot of the questions hadn't been tested at least in our in you know in a way that we were sort of satisfied with so we went and interviewed a ton of people and met with a ton of people who, both from within the housing ecosystem, mainstream kind of government and, and so on, through to people who've been doing alternative community stuff for a long time that's been quite successful, like Earth Song in Auckland and different groups. And we just, yeah, asked questions and kind of got got into the warm, the warm data of mm. it, the warmth of it. Mm. And through that, we kind of felt we've made a list of like, these are the things that we think kind of came up with a bit of a theory of change. Like these are the issues that we think are holding back the housing ecosystem as a whole from moving forward. Mm-hmm. And we kind of through that came up with, we think two things would actually help address a lot of these. And the first one was a plain English kind of primer that gives a an honest overview or as close to an honest overview of the challenges and complexity of the housing ecosystem as could be done in a way that people can engage with so like not written in policy language, not written mm-hmm. in discipline specific mm-hmm. language yeah. except fairly accessible although i've I've question marks about how accessible it is, but as accessible as we could given the complexity of the of issue yeah. and also not not oversimplifying the issue because mm. a lot of the there's a lot of good research out there that's often written from one perspective or is sitting on a government hard drive somewhere and is looked at in isolation from other Mm
2: -hmm. factors
3: that Mm -hmm. it can't really be disconnected from. And so we were really keen to actually showcase the fact that the housing crisis, it's not about reserve bank interest rates. It's not about supply and demand in macroeconomics. It's not about like, and it's about all of those things and more. Mm. Those are all components of it, Mm. but it's not, they're not focusing on just one of those is not going to move anything. Mm. And often it leads us to a point where w- it makes it easy for us to absolve ourselves of responsibility because we sit there and go, it's, mm. it's, the, it's this person's fault because yeah. they have yeah. not done their thing. When actually we all have a role to play yeah. and we're all, com- we're all complicit in this system that is harming people.
0: But surely there's a weight then to other elements that have more impact on the issue yeah. than for me who's a renter. Totally. We've never bought a property. For sure. Like so no, so where fault. is the weight? Way- the- That's what it <laughs> says on page fifty three. No He's, way, I fifty-three. 53. Didn't say that, yeah. My <laughs> conclusion, DK <laughs> did it. Do There's do a do do photo yourself. of me. Yeah. yeah. The big and going like that. Totally
3: just I suppose what I'm trying to it. get
0: at is where's the weighting of not fault, yeah. but impact yeah. on the housing. Well,
3: process. I guess so you're right that there is that weighting. The interesting thing for us is that like this has um quite a lot in it in terms of pulling together some of the other research and proposing or one of the things that it proposes is the inclusion of a collective housing kind of portion of the sector within the government usually uses a housing tenure model to assess housing uh, housing tenure and housing options and, and delivery models and that kind of ranges from assisted subsidized government so it's like from emergency through to assisted rental mm-hmm. blah 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 through to market for-profit yeah you know private ownership effectively
2: Indeed.
3: and there's nothing in the middle for like cooperative ownership collective ownership or things that allow for self-determination for communities mm. things mm. that allow communities to say this is my community and how i see it and how i think it's, yeah. it should change and empowers mm-hmm. them to 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 be partners to that process a lot of it is doing too and there are organizations there like Te Matapihi. this book this my notebooks from community housing Aotearoa, and the, the community housing provider chip sector are doing incredible work in that space, and are the best equipped, I think, in the country to really move on this stuff but it it's a big part of it is to really give us a basis to start to engage in a new conversation, yeah. because the housing crisis isn't about bricks and mortar; it is about the stories we tell ourselves about how we live and how that then leads to the way we show up in collaboration, the way we interact, the assumptions we make about the problem yeah. and and actually tomorrow. I don't know if either of you are free, but 9.45 to 12, we are going to be holding a workshop on this exact topic. And if either of you are free, would love for you to be there because it's going to be kind of a chance to have a conversation about this report and what might the follow thing. and come next.
0: The best, and it's horrible to condense everything down to a bumper sticker, mm. the best kind of response I've seen, and I think it came from a tweet, so that's how re- reliable it is. Of really, course, really, which right? is like... About the housing crisis, this... The, the main fault is that we've started to see houses as assets, yeah. not as homes. Cool, oh. See, it's good, yeah. isn't it?
3: They've mm. become wealth-generating assets. Yeah. So not. straight
0: away as soon as people figured that out. The discourse just changed towards, well, housing now is an asset-driven yeah. model. and It's the primary this, investment. Well, let's n- mm-hmm. be honest, that's what most people talk about it as. Yeah. Versus, yep. historically, my parents' generation, they were like, I'm going to buy a home. Yeah, people End very really talk about yeah. buying homes now. They talk about buying houses or properties even. Yeah, yeah, not mm-hmm. homes. Yeah. Totally, I think that's the problem we have now. It's just become an asset. Mm-hmm.
3: It's definitely part of it. Yeah, for sure.
0: One of the one of the assets. Yeah, Sorry but it's a, to, it's to a listen. really
3: key part of it. It's a really yeah. really key part of it. And the interest, it, we had I had a workshop with um, with Nati Toa a couple of weeks ago, and there was this kind of light bulb moment I had during the workshop when um, Helmet, the CEO of the Runanga, said that i can't remember exactly what he said but we were talking about that exact fact that it is kind of the primary pathway to wealth in new zealand mm. and we had the realization that we're all complicit to that yeah. not all that's yeah. unfair but we the majority of people mm. in society have this strange subtle pervasive uh, perverse incentive to maintain that system because yeah. either we have a property that we want to continue to grow in value. We're relying on that capital gain as our pathway to retirement or to future wealth. Or we are relying on saving enough money for a deposit for a property that is going to appreciate Mm -hmm. over time. So many people are relying on that as their pathway to wealth. And I, I mean, even that highlights that this is such a broader conversation because we need, we need wealth managers. We need mm. people who are advising people on how to save money. We need those in the investment community, social entrepreneurs, people, um, venture capitalists to be uh, exploring and advising people and educating people on alternative ways that they can invest their money mm. that is going to lead to wealth generation mm. in ways that are financial but not purely financial, mm. ways that also contribute to their community and their well-being in other ways. Wonderful.
0: Who else was involved in this? Because I know it was you, Motif, uh, James. So yeah,
3: Mo- so Motif was uh, the lead. Was yeah, was was led through Motif. I kind of was, I guess, the sort of lead author, I guess you might say. And James was super. Um, his perspective was just so invaluable and in, mm-hmm. in in so many ways. Um Beal, A Cub from um, Sense Partners, quite a. He's quite a, like, he's all over the TV. He's just knows his stuff, economist, incredible thinker, done a lot of really amazing research on what is not working in the housing sector. Jade Kake, who's um, an architect with um, Matakoi, which is her architectural firm based up in Fungare. Um Robin Allison, who is was the development coordinator of Earthsong, which is an eco-neighborhood up in Auckland, Ranui. Greer O'Donnell, who's a, a friend and um, director to, company that she co-founded the urban advisory rebecca mills from the lever room and emily mason from um frank advice but there was so many more and so many i I mean in the back there was so five and dime the amazing graphic designers Mm shadow stone who i think Mm -hmm. certainly you know dk um, and venture center who's an amazing kind of incubator entrepreneurial kind of program they support social entrepreneurs in a variety of ways based in Tauranga um, and just like a whole ton of people at the back. We interviewed so many people and just mm. so and many wicked. people's input and also just yeah. the, the research and input and work that so many people have done that provided a platform that this could kind of um, sit on. It's, mm. it's really, yeah, been, a, been, been key. Um, so, yeah.
0: What's the next stage? Like you're holding workshops about it, you're going to push it out. Is there a kind of a, maybe a through line to it? Well go, this is the first yeah.
1: bit. There's- and how do you get people to interact with it? That's-
0: yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Well we've got I mean we've we've done a few we've done a few media things thus far and there's been a little bit of interaction That's in right. that space. We've got a workshop tomorrow. There's gonna to be a conference in June at Victoria University, so- Kohohui Hui uh, two. Um, so Coho, we, there, was a, there was a conference two years ago. At that time, it was co-housing. It's probably collective housing
2: now, nice.
3: which is a bit more encompassing and includes co-housing, but also other forms of mm-hmm. of housing. Um, so that's going to be 22nd of uh, June. There will be a, probably an invite and um, live page up for that sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then, yeah, there's just going to be other conversational opportunities. We're actually releasing a workbook in the next I don't know, six weeks or so, which is like a how-to guide. So yeah. say you had a bit of land do you, you wanted to pull your money with some mates and buy sure. some land and develop it in a different way without just getting a developer on board and doing what was done last time. Yeah, this that's is what's lacking out there, right? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I own a
0: place yeah. called Wales. It's just uh, a little yeah, spot yeah, yeah. on, yeah. on yeah. the edge middle. of England. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> a little th- place I yeah. go to. Yeah. But you're <laughs> right. Like, yeah. and there's nothing out there that if you did yeah. want to do this, really and definitely is no support there's no, no. Like, government incentives at the moment i would imagine
3: uh no. there's a there's a few and there's people like community housing aotearoa okay. and some who, who do amazing work in supporting the, the community k- housing provider yeah. sector and iwi in delivering uh models of housing that do uplift people and then engage them in the process but for general people who just have a bit of land or cash there's not Mm -hmm. necessarily the same level of support so this workbook is basically going to be something that has like canvases and worksheets that you can print out and sit with your mates and figure out like what's important to you how do you navigate the resource consent You know, Mm. system the planning system here, stuff, yeah, yeah, the technical some of the technical stuff. So yeah, that's on the horizon, and then who knows? We'll just I don't know where the conversation's going to go. Our hope is very much that it just supports a conversation that can help us to move forward collectively and help have some of those voices that maybe haven't had a chance to influence discussions about housing inform.
0: Is there, and this might be a, a reach, is there a version of this overlaid with something like an unchatter mm. where you literally mash those two mm. ideas together? Not currently.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? <laughs> and not it can present. not be as pure as an unchatter, but, uh, you know, a conversation that's beyond just sitting in a room but actually a bit more emotive and stuff like that yeah
1: and something you just said um really stuck with me which is you know this idea of like sitting around with your mates and you know like having conversations about these things and i to me that's um as one of those people who probably falls in the you know the murky middle like a general Mm. a general person is like oh you know i don't know that much about this and if you do want to do something different like it seems like a big question mark. And how do you access those resources? Mm. So I think when you can get the conversation happening at that level of like, totally. oh, you know, like we're having a potluck or a dinner party and like, you know, this is, this is what we're chatting about. Yeah. That's where mm. I think things really start to shift is, yeah. is when you get them, you know, everyday people talking about them in everyday life.
3: Big time. Cause it's not, I mean, it's feels like it's one of the tensions where I, one thing I don't want this document to do is take away exposure resources attention from the likes of tim mm. at here community yeah. housing yeah, and the intent of it is not at all to do that it's really to if we don't provide those people in the middle who do have a bit of money and are kind of lost and are investing it in ways that are kind of traditional mm-hmm. if we don't provide them with an alternative path every single dollar that they put into the system is reinforcing the things that we're trying to change and if we suddenly can provide them with alternatives that was a big thing when i was in australia there was an organization called um i've totally forgotten the name now but they were a grassroots organization helping to foster divestment from fossil fuels Mm. and it was as soon as they started to get people onto changing their super fund based on whether their super Mm. was investing in coal simple things that that as soon as you start to channel those funds away you start to give people an alternative, and show that's how yeah. that's how change can happen. That then can support people like Tim Fip yeah. and community housing out there to do their good mahi mm-hmm. because they're not fighting against this Perfect. system yeah. that's constantly yeah. trying to resist the change they're trying to create.
0: Yeah. And all you need is sixteen percent. Because apparently, when you get sixteen yeah. percent, you tip the balance, yeah. yeah. And then you get into early adoption and all that. Yeah. yeah,
1: the people dancing yeah. on the hillside, right? The oh yeah <laughs> and
3: it's not what is it it's not the second guy, Is at the third
0: it's no the it's, third the the second, yeah. Yeah. it's the second guy. The second. yeah foster your first followers yeah nice yeah.
3: Nice. otherwise
0: <laughs> you're just a crazy shirtless
3: dancer. a crazy shirtless dancer <laughs> which you know part of the crazy shirtless dancer um, which is part of your presentation yeah. when you do this right <laughs> exactly <Copying laughs> it's the, the opening at the, the, the workshop tomorrow <laughs> yeah. <Jazz and> well, <laughs> we'll be there for <laughs> sure then right yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: totally oh wicked well i'm conscious of your time I really want to wrap this up in some cool way. Has anybody sure. got a juicy question that I, hasn't been asked?
1: I have a juicy question. I yeah. had a whole page of juicy questions Did we that we didn't get, get to. Give us
0: the juiciest.
3: I think that's a good sign. No, that's a sign. That's it
1: sign is. Rich. Yes. Hopefully
0: we covered a bit.
1: Okay. So one that I I have actually been thinking about that is, I think, relevant to what we've been talking about, like we've all shared a bit about our journeys and it strikes me that they're quite unconventional, you know, like, mm. I'm sure none of us when we were, you know, five years old were like, I want to, you know, be in like, you know, uh, like a design, um, you know, an experienced designer Mm. or, you know, like it's not a a traditional career path, if you will. It's not like saying I want to be a teacher or a fireman. So my question is, if your eight-year-old self was here, Mm. what would they want us to be talking about? And the kind of corresponding question to that is, how do you feel like you're kind of honoring that that spirit oh. in your life right now? Oh,
3: that's so good.
0: I've got a quick answer to that. Oh, good. My eight-year-old self will want me to speak about birds and how Ooh. the fastest bird in the world is peregrine falcon.
1: Ooh, can you're the right there. Go up to like place.
0: 214 or 16 miles per hour, depending on where we're looking at, <laughs> in a dive. Because I was a, a young ornithologist. Really? Ah. Yeah. Ah. And I used to love birds and stuff. And my brothers still joke to this day um, about my bird habits. Is that why uh, you came to New Zealand? Because of the birds? It could be, poem? right? Yes. Yeah, oh, birds uh... are amazing. But back then, I was just like, birds are cool, right? They're just weird and wonderful and stuff.
1: That's so cool. But
0: that's probably what I'll be. Ta- but I'd be quite shy, and I probably wouldn't be speaking up much. Mm. I wouldn't be happy here. Oh. <laughs> I,
1: I wouldn't either, yeah, right. I'd, I'd be much happier off in a corner somewhere with a book, yeah. So, at yeah. eight,
0: yeah, so, and am I doing it justice was the second part? Was yeah,
1: it... how are you kind of honouring that that spirit in your life right now?
0: Good point, I suppose the curiosity has always been it, I have mm. really be, enjoyed being curious about lots of different things, and I'm never happy just with one, you know, because I was into birds, but it was also in lots of other things, so but birds was the first thing because I remember a post I had about peregrine falcons and stuff like that. Because you do. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah totally like, everyone does. We, we didn't yeah, we, say anything, DK. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But uh, so yeah, I, I suppose you'd be looking at me going, seriously, what are you doing? You, you can't do that. Where are the
3: birds, yeah. DK? Yeah, where's the thing on the hand? Yeah, the, the yeah. falcon or something? Next, like create, next creative welly. Just oh, welly. yes. Yeah definitely. yeah,
0: definitely. Your answer.
3: We need to go to Zeladia sometime. Yes. Like all the...
0: I was up there a month ago oh, we needed- having a wander around with Paul who did a creative welly. Uh, cool. The chief executive of Zealandia.
2: Oh, right.
3: Oh. Yeah. Fun.
0: Anyway, so what was your answer to your uh, eight-year-old
3: self? That's such a good question. Tash, seriously, that's, yeah, super. I really appreciate that. And what a way to, what a way to wrap up. Mm. Um, I had an exchange with my mum recently. Um, she couldn't sleep at like 2.30 in the morning and we'd had this conversation earlier in the day and she sent me this email. It was just insane. It was it was her reflections on what was what what was most significant about me, my me, my brother, um, um my immediately older sister. Um, when we were younger, we were all quite close in age, and how we interacted. And one of the things she shared in that email was um, when I was like three or I don't know four or five, something like that. I used to say that I wanted to be a brain surgeon so that I could fix Sarah's brain. Aww. And that was like the thing that I that I yeah. And it's interesting that as I've kind of I've gotten older and sort of gone like, ah, oh, okay, so the, like one, Sarah's not a problem. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. the you problem up, is yeah. our reflections yeah. on mm-hmm. normal and ability or ableness. But um if the, if if it, if you know you were to pathologize, it's not the brain, it's something more complex and how mm-hmm. do people thrive and it kind mm-hmm. of started so I feel like I feel like my eight-year-old self would would just want me to care for people.
2: Mm.
3: Like, yeah. I think that was the thing. I, I've always just had a big passion for, and it's always been so core to me that I've always been very sensitive to the suffering of others. Yeah. That was another thing my mom shared in her email, was that she noticed when I started to notice that people could be cruel and the suffering oh. in the world around me and how that affected me. Yeah, so, funny. yeah, it does. And so, yeah, I think I would just want me to be kind mm. and doing things that care for people. And
0: Isn't that lovely the kids that are innate like that? Oh you just totally. wanna be nice yeah. on the whole. Sorry. Yeah.
3: No, no, no. It's you're so right. Totally. And it's and and that's like to the question of whether I think I'm doing that justice. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think I try my best. And I think I think the one thing that my little little Ben tells me often, even today, is that I'm often not doing it for myself. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. often I'm often sort of reacting or urgently trying to do things work or other things that maybe isn't inviting the slowness or the stillness that can lead to real uh real kindness and compassion for myself that can radiate out to others because i just don't think it's quite possible to be fully kind and compassionate and supportive of other people unless we're starting with ourselves Mm. so i think he kind of be just poking me and just encouraging me to take a bath slow down you know yeah so take a bath that yeah exactly (laughs) exactly i can hear it it Mm -hmm. there's
1: on that note there's a really um wonderful book called self-compassion by kristen neff and she Mm. is coming at this idea of kindness to ourselves and self-compassion through a research lens and it's yeah very 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 compelling so yes Uh, highly recommend nice i will check that out yeah yes your answer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, eight-year-old Natasha. She would want us to be talking about books and writing. I, I mean, I just was <laughs> such a, such a nerd, and like always had a very rich inner world. And mm. I think you know, much, much like you, was always a very sensitive kid. And mm. um, yeah, everything seemed to impact me quite, quite profoundly. And mm. and I think about that a lot like what it is in our childhood that we carry forward or don't in some cases and how you know that can create challenges for us and Mm. and I think the way that I try to honor that now is something that's really important to me is gentleness and I think earlier in my my life like in in young adulthood I felt like that wasn't something that was really valued in the world and So I I felt like I, you know, had to hide it or, you know, kind of toughen up a little bit and and put on more of that, you know, that firm facade. And now, as I've gotten older, I'm like, no, it's such a beautiful gift and the world needs a whole lot more gentleness. And so I've learned to at least try to embrace that and, yeah, and let it, you know, kind of filter out because I do believe that we we could use a whole lot more gentleness in this crazy world sometimes. Mm.
3: How would your eight year old self think you're
1: doing
0: on it? Mm. Oh. Well, straight I can I just add, would eight year old would have the same hair.
2: Yeah, 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 <laughs> yes.
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Just imagine same Yes, I did have some pretty epic hair, even as an eight year old. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, I think she would say probably like you, like I'm, I'm getting better. Sometimes I'm doing okay with it. And other times I still feel like I, you know, have to hide my light under a bushel, as they say, in in that sense. And it can be hard, I think, to, um, to try to be a, a compassionate leader and to get your ideas and your voice out there in a way that, that it's heard, but in a, you know, in a way that is gentle and and still has that softness to it. And Mm. sometimes people aren't always listening for the soft voices.
3: That's true. I kind of, I've had this kind of thing I've sat with for a while of kind of like fierce tenderness Yes. of like, there's this fierce quality of us bringing ourselves and Mm. our voice to the discussion and being candid and being direct and saying what we see and what, what we feel like needs named, but also doing so with a quality of tenderness and kindness and kind of, uh, yeah, not being unkind in it. And yeah. doing it in service to people and their growth. Yes, group. yes. You know, saying those things because we know that in pointing those things out, we all have more opportunities to grow.
1: Yeah, this I love that. might fierce be difficult tenderness. to receive,
3: but it mm. might be for the best as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone um, told me once that um, what Unchattered is about is they're like it's a gentle disruptor. Mm. I was like, oh, I love that. It makes me think of the fierce tenderness that you mm. mentioned. And I think it's such a beautiful illustration that we can. Mm we can, you know, move, um, move the earth and get ideas out there in really powerful ways and yet still do that in a way that really embodies a lot of compassion and, and gentleness. So, um, yeah. But it's also, I think, the, our work to model what it looks like to listen for soft voices yeah. and to, you know, yeah. to give them a platform in the work that we do. That's for sure. <sighs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> felt like that right it that was yeah. great yeah.
0: thank you guys that was for so giving up your time and thank you for being fun. together and with us all and sharing that was creative welly episode 16 courageous conversations with bold humans i told you so my name's been dk it always has been big shout out to jonno again for producing the video podcast of this audio podcast that you're listening to over at him films and for david hamilton as well for hosting us over at Flashdog studios Please subscribe to whatever you subscribe to these things, but check us out at creativewelly.com and we'll be back very, very soon. Take care and keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.